Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I am Lizzie No here with our forever host, Cindy Howes. How's it going, Cindy? Oh, it's going great. Um, I just want to say that uh, I love it when people sign up for our newsletter at basicfolk.com, and I love it even more when I remember to send out a monthly newsletter. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have that. We have that going for us. We are a listener-supported operation here, so, and you can... Make a donation at basicfolk.com slash donate. Uh, and it would be really helpful and meaningful to pitch us some dollars every month. Um, but if you are not in that position, that's totally fine. Uh, we're happy that you're here and we're happy that you're listening. Thanks for listening. And for signing up for the newsletter. I got the chance to write a guest newsletter and I found it very fun. Cool. I might have you do that again. Great. Just because I hate writing. I love writing. Ticky, 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 ticky. That's my impression of me sitting at the typewriter. Can I just tell you that yesterday we took all of the animals in our house to the vet? Oh, wow. How did it go? Great. Um, The puppy needed some shots and the cat has developed some kind of like puffy eye thing. And so now she's getting like 75 medications a day. She's turned into that cat. But we did learn that I am her one true love because I'm the only one that can hold her while the vet inspects her eye. Wow. How does it feel to be that trusted? It feels really good, but I also feel really bad for my wife. Yeah, because she's not the one that was chosen. Right. But she has a lot of other things going for her. Oh my gosh, so many things going for her. This is maybe the one thing that I have going for me (laughs) that I can hold my cat. (laughs) You have lots going for you. It's not your fault you're not a hot doctor who's also really tall and good at sports. Yeah, it kind of is my fault, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Elizabeth's got the height. You've got the cat whispering. What's going on with you? I'm doing well. I have had a busy week. I'm in the studio being a sideman harpist. And it was also my stepson Ames's birthday, his seventh birthday. Happy birthday, Ames. Happy birthday, Amesy. He requested a Pokemon-themed birthday. um, And his other step-parent made him this unbelievable... Uh, pokeball cake um we had pokemon colored balloons he got a lot of pokemon cards and toys and some stuffed animals and he every present that he opened he just screamed with excitement and like flung himself onto the couch like he was so lit and it was humbling (laughs) to see someone just like that present in life just loving life it was it was a beautiful day that's amazing is his I feel like I heard that his favorite Pokemon was Pikachu. When you all were visiting, I feel like they were talking about, everybody was talking about Pokemon, and he was getting burned by his siblings for having Pikachu as his favorite. I was like, don't be ashamed, Mm -hmm. Ames. Pikachu is amazing. Yeah, and and just because you're, and he's basic. Like, it's fine to be basic on basic folk. Obviously. (laughs) It's like Mickey Mouse is your favorite or Bugs Bunny right. is your favorite. Like those are qu- there's a reason. There's a reason why they're the leaders, exactly. why they're in charge. Absolutely. It's fine to be mm-hmm. a Gryffindor. Yeah. <laughs> it is fine. Let's get to our guest today. I'm very excited. You get to talk to Andara. Oh, Andara, what a dreamboat. Um before I even get into the intro, I want to encourage everyone to go out and buy and pay for his new album Spanish Villager number 3. It kind of has the vibe of like Tracy Chapman telling stories, like kind of perfect, um, really heartfelt soul pop. Um, But I digress. When Andara was a little boy growing up in Nairobi, 
music was both everywhere and just out of reach. He would walk around the market listening to the music that different vendors were playing from their speakers. Um, And when he heard something that really caught his attention, um, which was typically like... He would Shazam it. No, he did not Shazam it. Um, It was typically like (laughs) classic rock. Um, from the U.S. and U.K., um, he would, like, go linger by that stall. Um, But at home, his family couldn't afford instruments, and there was only one radio in the household, which was constantly in demand for the news. So when everybody Mm -hmm. was asleep, Andara would stay up late and have his precious solo radio time to listen to music. He started writing Mm -hmm. poems and songs, all acapella, by the way, uh, just like whatever melodies came to mind, because he figured that if Bob Dylan could create a legacy setting insightful poems to music, so could he. This is where our story gets really wild. In 2013, Andara won the green card lottery to come to the U.S., and he moved to Minneapolis because A, he had a family member there, and B, his hero, Bob Dylan, was from Minnesota. Andara quickly discovered that Minnesota was sort of different than he had dreamed of, but he started putting in the work. He was working temp jobs in order to save up to buy his first guitar. He was writing dozens upon dozens of songs that would eventually become his debut album, Tales of America. And he was getting his foot in the door in the Minneapolis open mic scene. But he found that it was really hard to put a band together the life of a songwriter is lonely, and that in America, the color of his skin came with this whole set of expectations about how he should behave and even about what kind of music he was supposed to be into. Andara has worked to understand those expectations without bowing to them. During our conversation, he shared that being Black in America means joining a tradition of art and resistance and that it matters to him that he be somebody that helps the cause. His ability to contribute to the cause has grown exponentially uh, since he hit the road in support of his debut album and ended up opening for artists like Neil Young, Lindsey Buckingham, and the Lumineers. No big deal. Um, Since then, Andara has looked outward for subject matter, releasing a pandemic-inspired album in 2020 based on his friends' stories of quarantine dating and struggling to pay the rent. He has also undertaken a significant spiritual journey as he struggles to reconcile fame and the demands of capitalism with his desire to become a grounded, useful, wise, grown-up adult. For now, his solution comes in the form of The Spanish Villager, the hyper-performative character at the center of his new album. So come for the perfect folk pop, stay for the spiritual journey and the character development that Andara has really cleverly woven into this new record. All right, we're going to take a listen to a bit of a song from the new album. This is A Prophet of Doom, and then we'll get to our conversation between Lizzie No and Andara on Basic Folk. So you got your- I do not believe in small talk. No? No, not at all. Andara, thank you so much for joining me on Basic Folk. I'm Lizzie No, and I am so excited to talk about not only your new album, but kind of a career retrospective if you're game. So let's start at the very beginning. Sure. What was your childhood like, and how did being a city kid shape how you saw the world? Um... I suppose and when I think about about you know growing up now, 
in retrospect, I see how, you know, maybe life was probably difficult growing up uh, sort of in, uh, in the depths of poverty in Nairobi. Um, but at the time, I was just a kid growing up. It's just all I knew. So it, it didn't feel particularly difficult. It just felt like, well, this is what, this is what life is. This is the world, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when I think about it, I'm like, was that hard? But, you know, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> it didn't feel particularly hard. Uh, but, you know, but, you know, we didn't have too many luxuries, um, per se. Um, not much access to, to arts or music, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, as a person who's very drawn to the arts, was kind of right. difficult. But we, f- we found ways around it, you know, there was uh, some, like, a tiny battery-powered radio that mm-hmm. I would try to track down when everyone's asleep and listen to, to music, um, or walking around the markets trying to discover Western songs. I mean, it was sort mm-hmm. of like, it was, uh, some, some of the music discovery was almost like wine tasting, where you would, like... Right. Where you would like walk around the market and then you'd hear all these people playing all these songs, right? Because it was sort of the advent of CDs and pirating. Mm-hmm. And, and so all these people, they're just trying to make a living. So they would go online and, and just grab some random songs from the West. And then they would play them in the market. And like, hey, mm-hmm. hey, come listen to this. So when you're walking around, you, you hear something you like, you go over there and you're like, oh, right. what's this? Is this, uh, what's this band? <laughs> well, it's, called, it's called Radio... Radio head? what? <laughs> radio, radio head. That's a very strange name for a, a band, but okay, I like it. Yeah, it's interesting because it sounds like that's something like I always sound so old when I talk like this, but it's like today's kids will never understand, right? Because they have Spotify and things like that. Like, I know. it sounds like <laughs> your early experiences of music was like samples of like, and often like if you're walking by, you're not hearing the whole song. Um, you're just hearing little bits and pieces. So you had to kind of figure out quickly what you were drawn to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then once you, you find a sound that you're gravitating towards, you, you go to the, the person and you start talking to them and, and, uh, uh, and see and start negotiating. Like, can I get this for like, you know, can I give you like a couple bananas? Mm-hmm. maybe I'll get a CD, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that seems I, like a good trade. Yeah, I tried it. I tried, tried that trade a few times because I didn't have money, but I love this CD, so I would try to offer, like, my mom's bananas uh, mm-hmm. in exchange for, for music. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's um, sort of what childhood was with sort of my discovery of music and all that. You you mentioned that after everybody was asleep, you'd be up with the battery-powered radio. Does that mean that, like, your family was less enthusiastic about music than you were? Was there a sense of secrecy, or was it just that's when you had the time? Well, it was, uh, I think, since we just had this one radio, and during the day, other people would use it for other things, right? You know, they would, like, they would like to want to listen to the news, or they want to mm-hmm. listen to... People love listening to the news. I don't know what that's about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just played BBC World Service all day. So it, it wasn't secrecy as much as uh, it was trying to just narrow down the time when everyone's asleep. And I have, I have like a, a little block of time mm-hmm. where, where I, can, I, can, uh, I can go and listen and unperturbed. I mean, I suppose there was a, a certain amount of secrecy to it, but um, I, I think mostly it was just trying to wait until everyone's not using the radio. <laughs> right. And when did you learn to sing? Um, how did you learn to sing? How and yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's a that's a, it's a good question, a difficult one too, because I, I, sure. I can't I can't pinpoint a particular. I I never really thought of myself very much as a singer, um, I, I still, you know, I'm still very self-conscious about my voice. And I think part of the reason why I, I, will, I became very drawn to Dylan was because I, I just loved poetry mm-hmm. and, <clears throat> and writing. And after discovering Dylan, I was like, wait, 
I feel like he's just narrating poems. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like I could probably do this and maybe I, maybe I might be able to make some kind of, of living of sort. Singing is something that I think I, I just happened upon. I mean, I always loved singers like 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 Jeff Buckley, mm. uh, like like Nina Simone. It was always so, it was always sort of like something that I just needed to publish my poems somehow, right. and so um, I thought I'd use what I've got, and then I I discovered that some people liked it, and I was like, oh, well that's interesting, because it's not like something that I was no one ever really told me that they liked my voice growing up or anything. Yeah. Uh, Fascinating. So. <laughs> and look at you now. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're going to touch back on this, but I just want to cover some of our like broad topics that we're going to reach for again when we talk about Spanish villager uh, number yeah. three. So were you raised in religious tradition at all? Yeah, I would say... I, I was. Um, I didn't. I don't. I, I don't know if I took to it. Okay. You know, properly. Um, I, I asked too many questions. Oh, one of those. One of those. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I was that kid uh, who was like at eight years old, just asking questions to the to the pastor, and and you know, for some reason, they didn't like that very much. <laughs> what was the uh, denomination or? or the church that you, or whatever, the, the religion right. that you grew up in. Right. So we moved a bit. Uh, I think m- my mother's uh, background is v- very, it's centered on Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when, when she moved to the city, um, to, to Nairobi, I think she started going to Protestant churches. So there was a weird thing where we moved, we just kind of, we, kept trying out churches interesting different different denominations Mm -hmm. um yeah which is kind of kind of weird now to think back (laughs) i think in (laughs) retrospect that was kind of that's kind of weird but we would just sort of like try this church and then try this church and then try this church um some relatives were in uh what some of the adventists so that's intense it was, it was intense. It was extremely intense. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we tried we tried a, a couple of different things. Um, but with all this trial, I mean, I, I studied the Bible, mm-hmm. part, part of it in school, because it was mandatory, uh, and, and part of it through just being immersed in these communities. Uh, so I'm, I'm sort of well familiar, well, I'm familiar with biblical literature. Mm-hmm. And, and and religion and I have a fascination with, with that and with spirituality in general which I think comes from that upbringing but I, I never quite took to it exactly and I had to find my own a, a way of charting my own spiritual path and sort of taking things that I learned from that and you know running it through some kind of uh, internal personal internal system yes. to yield something more personal to me yeah, I can relate heavily to that. I mean, I grew up in the evangelical church and there's a lot of like, especially the Old Testament in my music. Yeah, and I do yeah. feel like nobody knows the Bible like a skeptic. Like you look at it as a piece of literature and as something that, you know, has affected you deeply. But I do think I see that in a lot of your lyrics. There's like talk of sin and rebirth and all of these things, but it's not it's sort of from an outsider's perspective, which is, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, uh, it, it is very, it's sort of like a, it's very, uh, the way I approach it is quite literary. Like I think mm-hmm. of it as, as literature, but literature that has sort of like a, a like some kind of spiritual value of sort. Sure. Um, yeah. That's a generous, um, interpretation it's good <laughs> it's like i can take something good from it where there's good yeah i i, I do i do think i don't try i tried not to um I, and this has been a journey for sure because i went sure. through a phase where i was like just very pissed at religion in general and as i as i grow up i'm finding ways to maybe not throw the baby out with a bath water sure <laughs> just sort of like try to find where the baby is and mm-hmm. pre- preserve that um and that's a process of maturation that has been very very difficult 
finding ways to reconcile my you know my psyche with that kind of upbringing because it was it was it was very it was it was very it was difficult there was a conflict between how i felt about the world and how the very very conservative religious environment i was in felt about the world and mm-hmm. uh, and so that pushed me away from religion for a while and i'm only now trying to integrate myself with that with that past wow can you give an example of that like what was a moment as you're kind of awakening to the contradictions where you're like now here's something i know to be true and now but it goes against this teaching that i've been raised with like can you give an example of that well i mean i think um starting to to spend more time out in the world and say meeting people who didn't fit categorically into say uh straight or right. you know right some of those things and becoming really good friends with people who are in the LGBTQ community and then sort of trying to kind of negotiate that strong connection i have with this with all these folks with the the messages that i'm getting from my immediate environments and uh coming from the religious teachings that was one of those moments where i was like well this this just feels this doesn't sound right <laughs> right it's a, yeah. yeah like this truth and this supposed truth just cannot sit side by side yeah because it's like what you're experiencing mm-hmm. and and what you're told ought to be accurate is are just sort of in direct opposition yeah so that's 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 one of the things right <laughs> yeah. i that's a pretty big conflict i'm curious about when you won the green card lottery which is such a crazy way of that our country decides to let human beings come or go um when you moved to <laughs> you moved to minnesota what were your days like and like, what were you doing with your time day to day before, like, this period that you're in now where you're, like, a full-time touring musician? Like, tell me about the transition time. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, it was it was working temp jobs, uh, mm-hmm. trying to save up to record demos and to buy okay. a guitar. I would work temp jobs during the day and then go to open mic during mm-hmm. in, the, in the evening. Um, so I had, I had so many so many temp jobs i think one of my one of my favorite jobs i've ever had apart from making records mm-hmm. is is this job where we were basically we would sit in the warehouse and and assemble toy guns all day while watching netflix wow and then during the breaks we would just run around the warehouse and shoot each other with the toy guns that is so much more fun than any temp job I ever had. <laughs> temp jobs are, are kind of cushy. Like I used to like sit at the front desk of a bank and like when you're a temp, everyone knows you don't know anything. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, people yeah. would show up and be like, I have an appointment. I'd be like, I don't know anything about that, but you can sit there and I'll try to call somebody. It was like so easy, yeah. <laughs> but making toy guns sounds a lot better. Yeah, it was, it was fun. It sounds like a, like a premise for a sitcom or something. Oh like yeah. That. Yeah. And how did you come across your first guitar? And what kind of guitar was it? Well, I saved up f- for a while and uh, f- from doing all these jobs. And then I bought this mini Taylor. Ooh, very nice. Yeah. Um, That's a great songwriting guitar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Was, what was yeah. your practice routine like? Like, how did you approach it? it? Was that your first time playing guitar? Yeah. Yeah. What was uh, your... What was your regimen? Um, very unstructured. It was more like um, I just I started learning Dylan songs, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and and like Neil Young songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once I figured out how to play a couple of songs, I just became too excited, and I started like inserting my poetry. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I was like, hey, what are all these old poems I wrote 10 years <laughs> ago? Let's see if I can put them in a 
you know this progression there's this excitement there's uh it's it's so lovely to think about that period of time uh discovering because i wanted to to play for such a long time i just didn't have access to to instruments because we couldn't afford it um so being able to play a song uh was just this very blissful uh feeling and then being able to put my poetry there um it was like I discovered something, uh, you know. It's a feeling I'm probably never going to have in that, in that fashion again. You know? No. Yeah, but th- there wasn't... It's like discovering I... that you have hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And what was the music scene like in Minneapolis? You did a lot of open mics. Like, what were the venues that you plugged into and felt inspired by? Yeah, so there was an open mic at uh, at a, a Japanese restaurant uptown called Motoi. Uh, mm-hmm. That I I went for, I think every week for about two years, every Tuesday, and then there was another one in Saint Paul, um, called Plums, uh, and I went there every Sunday probably for also around two years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was it was mostly that just trying to figure out how to plugging into the, the, the community and uh, making friends and trying to to figure out how to accompany myself. And then after a while, I started doing shows. But mm-hmm. I, I, did, I did open mic for a long time before I did any, any kind of show. Yeah. Do you yeah. remember the period of time or the particular moment where you started to realize, like, this is working? People are reacting to this combination of my voice, my lyrics, and my playing? Um, I don't know if there's a particular point per mm-hmm. se, per se. I think, I think it, it's, it felt, um, or well, maybe I was just too self-conscious to like see that, hmm. uh, c- c- coming my way. Uh, for me, I was just, I was just, uh, it, it's, it almost felt like it was going well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and, uh, and uh, at some point, there there was there just there was a built up momentum, because and I think I was getting better. I didn't I didn't realize mm-hmm. I was, but but I think I was just because of doing it for a long time, uh, and I became more competent. And uh, I mean, one of one of like the the memories I have from the open mic was like one of the very early, <clears throat> early performances where I, I just finished playing all these folk songs that just written and then I, I come off stage and you know maybe this answers your question in some roundabout way this guy come, <laughs> comes up to me and he is very taken he's like whoa that was really cool so do, do you also rap? no <laughs> I wish I could tell you that I'm so surprised. I really wish. Uh, uh, yeah. Ay, 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 ay. You, didn't see, you didn't see where I was going with that, did you? <laughs> but I think that was sort of one of my uh, kind of Ali, Ali, because I was very confused by the question. I just was like, I don't really understand what you mean. Mm-hmm. Because I was still very new to America and I didn't realize that people have associated kind of you know pigmentation with musical mm-hmm. styles and all that because um where i'm from people sort of mostly look the same yeah <laughs> and you know people just you know there's metal bands and there's folk bands and electronic bands and whatever and people just gravitate towards what they gravitate towards and it's not tied to any sort of you know cultural pigmentation right. around what they look like because they all look the same so that was a novelty for me mm-hmm. to to learn and uh um yeah I believe it I, or not that was going to be my next question like i was going right? to ask you how did it feel to come to america and become black it's like a such a crazy it's got to be such a culture shock to come here and have to catch up on all of these assumptions that are made about you and all of these social codes, like, were there ever moments where you're like, Oh, I need to move through the world differently. Or like, um, miscommunications that you had, like based on this new, like role that you took on. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, 
the idea of learning to to be black is you know it's, it's a fairly accurate way to 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 think of it and to to kind of adapt to these sort of assumptions and, and stereotypes that people have you know assigned to to you uh, as a result of of your pigmentation that was highly strange for me and i think i think it's i bet and it's it still is uh, in many ways um I, I think in some ways i'm still sort of trying to educate myself properly on um because it, it it's it's so strange because there's there's so, there's this sort of very elaborate lineage of, of black history that's very spe- specific to America and the history of America, and then you come in as an immigrant and you look the same way um, right. as as that and trying to you know navigate that that space you know trying to educate yourself and uh, you know be helpful to the course. Um, is it's an ongoing process for me, uh, I think. But yeah, it's super weird, to say the least. Yeah, I bet. Um, mm. I that kind of leads beautifully into Tales of America. Um, before we talk about the magnificent Grammy-nominated album, can you tell me about the Lost album? That, like, that you told you you said in an interview that you recorded a full or almost a full record by the same title and then you weren't happy with it. Like, what was that album all about? And how did you settle on the songs that eventually became your debut? Yeah, it's, you know, I was talking about uh, the, friend of mine about the hero's journey recently mm-hmm. and how like, <laughs> and how like the artistic process has its own hero's journey. Like there's yes. a sort of, you can think of like, art has its own journey that is sort of like, you know, art itself, like the thing that becomes presented has its own sort of hero's journey. And I think, uh, you know, I made this record, Tales of America, it was called. Um, I always knew my first record was going to be called Tales of America. It was always, it was sort of just like destiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I made this record and I just didn't, I just didn't like it. I just wasn't, you know, I wasn't very... Um, I didn't feel connected to it very much, um, and and so I, I I scrapped it, and I think I don't know I don't know maybe one song from that made it into into the the newer version. Oh really? Uh, yeah. Which song uh, was that? I think it was Television Girl. Oh yeah, a bop. Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, um, so I don't know if I can, you know, I think it's just, that was just a process where I just yeah. had to, I just had to do it and then be like, okay, that's not it. And then do it again. Um, mm-hmm. And that was the hero's journey of the record. Sure. You, could, you could say, yeah. Well, that's, that's very hero's journey. Like, especially because it's not just that you worked and worked and worked. It's that you knew that there was an it that you were striving for. And maybe it was some sort of platonic ideal and you realized the first album, you know, didn't match up to this. Like you knew you were reaching for something higher and that's what kept you working. It wasn't just for the sake of working or being a perfectionist. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What was the, how did you make the decision to record Lebanon um, acapella? Um, because you said, you, you've said that you're self-conscious about your voice and that song is a standout to me. So was there self-consciousness going into that? What was that you, decision making? What, like? what, are you talking about Turkish bandana? Oh yes, sorry, Turkish bandana. That's acapella. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's been a while since I heard or spoke about that song. That's a deep, that's a deep cut. <laughs> uh, deep I love best. them both, and now I've mixed up song titles. Just so basic oh. folk listeners can know that I too am fallible. <laughs> um, I like both of those songs. Uh, tur- tur- so Turkish bandana is really a reference to, in a way, um, how I started out with music, where it was just poems, a cappella, and then I would, because I didn't have instruments, I would just sing the poem, mm-hmm. and, I, and I would just come up with a melody, and I would just sing it. Um, and so 
I am working on a record at the moment, actually, which is just that. It's just sort of me singing poems a cappella, and I'm really excited about it. Um, oh my god, I can't wait. Um, but yeah, I think it was. I was just trying to call back to those early moments of when I didn't have an instrument, and that's all I could do. Uh, mm. Yeah. How did you know when the album was finished? Well, um, I think one, 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 once I finished American Dream, mm-hmm. which is the opening track, then I knew it was done. I, 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 you know, I struggled with that song. I wrote over 20 versions of it because I just couldn't find it. Um, but I think as soon as I found that, that was sort of the last, the last song. As soon as I found that one, um, I was like, I think, I think we're good. We had, you know, over a hundred songs to choose from for from that for that record, uh, and so I narrowed and I used the theme of Tales of America to narrow it down to a couple, and just sort of kept, you know, like if I have eleven songs, and I would just write several versions of the same song until I have the right the right feel for it. And uh, American Dream was the last one. Wow. Where do you write? Do you do you write at home? Did you write in studio? Do you co-write? You know, I haven't done much co-writing. I'm uh, I'm curious about it though. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my writing process is very uh, it's very personal, very internalized. Um, I'm not. I don't know yet how to like invite someone. I feel like it's it be a maddening process to like bring someone into that. <laughs> insanity yeah. I always feel like a co-write would be like showing a stranger a photo of you naked like do you want to critique this do you want to it's like yeah, a yeah. bit too vulnerable it is yeah 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 um I mean as far as how I write I mean I I, I write I mean I write everywhere and anywhere you know on flights um, mm-hmm. I write a lot on flights um you know while driving, walking, um, before dinner in the morning when I wake up, sometimes in the studio. There is never, I don't have a, I don't have, similar to like how I learned guitar, everything I do seems to be fairly unstructured. It's just like, it's, mm-hmm. it, it appears like madness and it's just, there's a, there's a, there's a method about it, but sure. it, 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 it it looks it looks like just madness though if you're looking at the papers like well this is when he wrote this is how this is where he wrote and it's it's just like what the heck are you doing but I, it's sort of a, I think over time uh, amalgamates to some kind of order. No, and intuitively you know when the drafting is done and and the song is like ready because it sounds like you have a very intensive process of editing and rewriting. And then at yeah. a certain point, you're like, okay, that's that. That's the song. Yeah. Out it goes to the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a bit of intuition that mm-hmm. goes that goes into that too. Yeah, totally. Was it on that first record tour, release tour, that you were opening for Lindsey Buckingham and like you really like started playing some huge stages, correct? Yes. 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 That would be. Was there a learning process or a learning curve at all as far as onstage sound? Like I imagine going from playing open mics to small venues to theaters, then suddenly there's this leap to like you're playing huge rooms. Um, And I'm curious how you recalibrated your show, not only to a larger audience, but to just like a different like technical setup. Like what was that process like for you? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I sort of, I, I carried more guitars, I suppose, okay. uh, <laughs> and I sort of, uh, I started using different tunings, mm-hmm. um, just to, especially in the solo shows, just to make them feel more interesting and different, um, sometimes it's, it, it can be difficult to hold the attention of a big room with just solo uh, Acoustic, which is how I, I did most of my tours. Um, at some point, when I when I did the Lumineers tour, where we were playing arenas, I I, I did that tour with uh, a string trio. Ooh, fun! Yeah, so I, I didn't play guitar at all. It was just like a 
three string players and then just me belting songs from Tales of America. It was very fun. <laughs> Do you like to move and dance on stage or was it weird to suddenly not have anything in your hands? I mean, I had the microphone. Okay. Uh, uh, so that was helpful, but I was moving around sort of just, uh, that was, you know, one of the, I've never done, I've never done anything like that before. Um, mm-hmm. So I did have the microphone, which is very helpful. My show now, I don't have a microphone. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a, you know, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, whole a, other, it's a whole other, <laughs> it's a whole other thing. Yeah. yeah, I can relate to this so intimately. Like I always am reaching for moments when I can um, hire enough people that I don't have to play anything. But then once I get it, I'm like, oh no, now I have to like maybe look interesting or do something with sure. my arms. <laughs> you know, it's so yeah. it's a completely different show, and I can't imagine doing that in front of an arena audience. Yeah, yeah, that's all. That's amazing. Do you feel like the Grammy nomination? made people react to you differently whether like on tour or like other artists and and folks in music industry spaces um yeah probably um mm-hmm. probably but I, I don't think i was particularly and i mean i'm very grateful for it but i wasn't sure. I, I don't think I, was, I don't think i was taken by it in any particular yeah. way i think it was just sort of like oh that's interesting mm-hmm cool <laughs> right uh, it's those types of awards can be the type of thing where it's not as important to you like but it makes other people yeah, react well, or something we, i suppose that was a surprise to me right uh, seeing people's reaction because to me it, it didn't feel it, it didn't feel anything it didn't feel it didn't feel particularly special sadly <laughs> it, it was just like oh you know that's cool thank you um but seeing people's reaction to that was, yeah, it's, like, it's kind of weird. I mean, it's a, it's a, the, the, the significance people attach to accolades sure. is, is, is strange, especially when you consider that art is extremely subjective. Yeah. Uh, um, so, you know, I don't, I wouldn't get attached to, to accolades at all. No. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's It's about... good because if, if you care a lot when you get them, it's going to feel really bad when you don't get them, you know, not you in particular, but (laughs) anyone. (laughs) I'm not predicting your downfall. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to, to just, I think, make records and play them. Um, and, and, and commune with people whilst doing that, whatever side effects that come with that. I, Mm. I I, I tend to generally, create some kind of wall in my head I don't want to I don't want to care about it because I don't want to learn how to care about it and you know and become too attached to that part of of the walk teach me your ways um (laughs) I want to talk about folk and roll volume one tales of isolation so where did you spend the quarantine and who did you imagine was the audience for these songs that you wrote like all alone like, if there was yeah. no one around you, how did you imagine the songs being received? I mean, I was sort of just uh, having a conversation, I suppose, with my muse, mm-hmm. uh, you could say. And I, I was just checking in with her and see how she feels about the songs. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, trying to... I was talking to people, to to friends on the phone, uh, and I would try to, you know, like if someone tells me something, uh, like oh man, that's sad, and then it would like six, like there's a song, uh, I think it's called From Six Feet Away, mm-hmm. uh, which was I was just talking to a friend, and she, I think she's telling me about how she can't see her partner because they work at at a at a hospital, and and so they have to like go and stay somewhere else during that period. And so having these conversations with people uh, create a lot of content for for me to like to mm-hmm. so I was <clears throat> I was expressing things I was feeling, but I was also expressing things I think the whole culture was feeling at that at that very concentrated particular time in history. <laughs> it's like a little yeah. very specific portrait of, of a time. I mean, yeah, Mr. Landlord is one that stands out to me because 
it's that song tells a story that so many of us went through of like, how are we going to pay the fucking rent? Like nobody's working. Nobody can do anything. Can you tell me the story behind that song? Like it is in direct address to the landlord. But did you, did you feel like that song went out to, to friends of yours? Like who was your audience for that? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I was talking to people back home, actually, mm-hmm. uh, in, in Kenya, who were mm-hmm. having a, a, a very difficult time making making rent because of of, of, uh, of the times. I definitely knew several, you know, musicians who were pulled out of tours mm-hmm. and who were just, you know, having a difficult time not knowing, like, when next month's rent is, is going to, to come from. Uh, it, I think that song definitely came from several conversations with, hmm. with, with several people who were just like, I don't know what next month is going to, I don't know, I have zero idea what I'm going to do next month if the landlord comes knocking the door and he goes, actually, you get a, uh, I need my money and... <laughs> And you have to, and so I was imagining this scenario where uh, it's somewhat comical, but you know, it's like the mm-hmm. the. It's a playful song. It is, yeah. The the persona is being like, oh well, can I make you a cake instead, Mister mm-hmm. Landlord? And <laughs> yeah, uh, could I do a little dance for you for that? Uh... <laughs> so it's finding a very playful way to communicate something mm-hmm. very dark and 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 serious. Right. Yeah. Like, could I give you a couple bananas for the CD? Yeah, yeah, essentially, essentially, yeah. You've been negotiating a long time. Yeah, it looks that way. Well, another lyric that kind of stood out to me was on lockdown on date night Tuesday, because it's like, I'll put on my gray suit if you put on your red dress. And you have a very distinctive sense of style, kind of since the jump. Can you talk a little bit about what the suits do for you? Is it a character? Is it a performance? Or is that, or is that like your highest self? Like, who are you in a suit? <laughs> Good question. Who am I in a suit? Um, I think I think that's I'm I'm very drawn to fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I was I was have been the the character I created for this new record has a suit as well. But mm-hmm. I'm 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 as me as well. I'm pretty drawn to 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 suits uh, in general and i think just fashion uh, mm-hmm. you know i think it's just uh, another method of of expression for me uh, yeah of, did you still uh, get dressed up even in the quarantine um not very much to be honest but, <laughs> but i did a I, I, I did one time see a couple well i used to walk a lot um I don't know if you remember doing those walks where you walk and you just like, oh, you, yeah. see, you see someone walking, you like, you go to the other side of the street. <laughs> Horrible. It was so I awful. used to go running during quarantine and I, it was like being in a video game where you're like running and then you have to like jump into the road and it was horrible. Yeah, it was so yeah. bad. It was so wild. <laughs> I mean, I can't, that's, that was such a weird little pocket of time. Yeah. Um, wow. Um, but anyway, I used to go to a lot of walks, and um, at one time I saw this couple in their house just having dinner in their in their dining room, and they were super dressed up, and it was oh. it was really cute. And I was like, "Oh, that's that's awesome. That's beautiful." And I, oh my uh, god, that's sort of where that that song that song came from. But it's just this idea of everything's closed out, and you still want to try and retain this uh, um, romance within your relationship um, and so having a little date night in your little house and, and giving it the attention that it would typically require like getting really dressed up and, and doing it properly uh, and then just like meeting at the, at the dining room yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah see you in the dining room yeah see you in the dining room <laughs> Well, speaking of that character, that dapper character, who is the Spanish villager? He is, I suppose, he is a lot of things. Um, he is kind of like a, a, a master, a master solution for 
several um, psychological problems that uh, I have accrued during my tenure in in America. Huh. I think he is. Uh, he is. That's one one of the things that he is. He is that we've that I've been speaking about during this campaign is he's something of a a repository for my anxieties. You could say, hmm. yeah. He is. You know, like I think sometime over the last few years, I, there was I felt like there was this sort of a. a cultural decree you could say uh, that the western ex that the american experiment had failed hmm. uh, and so i think being an immigrant who essentially rearranged my entire life to try and pursue this same experiment kind of put me in this sort of weird cognitive dissonance state um, i was like okay so if this thing is invalid does that mean that I'm invalid? Like, you know, as, as, right. a, as a, you know, and so this was, it was a very kind of spiritual crisis of sort um, that I think was very difficult to, to pass and to, to reconcile with, within my psyche. Sure. Uh, and I think at some point I kind of had a, a, some kind of dissociation of sort where, you know, I think my, my brain was like, you actually can't handle all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Let me take all this pain and put it somewhere else. And, and, and that was one of the early development stages of, of, uh, of the Spanish villager. Um, and so that's one thing that he is. I think he also solves several other kinds of problems for me. I think he, as my career was, was growing, I was I was feeling this, um, you could say, crisis of maturation, where I was trying to, I was having a hard time reconciling who I was as a person um, and who I was as, as a celebrity, as this sort of sort of commodified public figure. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and so being in sort of my late 20s and feeling the pressure to mature, right? And, and mm -hmm. I'm... And I'm thinking, you know, when I think of maturation as this process of, of optimizing, right? Where you're, mm -hmm. you're kind of optimizing yourself to be better, more integrated, you know, more spiritual and whatnot. And um, I think the process of, the process of optimizing yourself for like, you know, and integration and spiritual maturation mm -hmm. and the process of optimizing yourself for, uh, for profit are two different kind of paths, you know? Mm -hmm. And so and so I just felt like I didn't know who I was as a person who needed to optimize for spiritual maturation and this person that needed to optimize for, for profit over time. Right. Um, and so that kind of conflict is one of the, one of the reasons why I think SU was also born is to become a partition where mm -hmm. he he can be the sort of my the de facto public person and he can be the wall between the art and the right. artist um so that's another purpose for him and you know he's also something he allows me to dance more <laughs> um which which has been a, a very healing process because yeah I, I can't really dance as myself, I'm just too shy. Uh, but once I'm in character as SB, I feel like I can, I don't have to be overly self-conscious. So, you know, he is something of a, of a, you know, a master key for maturation for me and for healing and for, for life in a way. It's a, it's kind of an elaborate story that I should put in a, in, in a memoir. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've read that you created a, was it a graphic novel and a short story around the Spanish villager? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, when can we have it? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think the first, the first like episode of it probably be, I already released this, the brief synopsis. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. Um, so that's, I think it, it's online somewhere and we should have like the first episode sometime this year. 
Um, oh my gosh, I can't wait. I can't yeah. wait for that visual. Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks. I want to ask you, I know we have to wrap in a few minutes, but this question of how your spiritual growth and this long thread that runs through your life and is really not affected by your success or failure or other people's perceptions of you, like that's on one side. And then there's this hyper-capitalist, individualist urge in our society to like perfect yourself for profit and be more productive and be more pleasing to others. Like, where are you at spiritually with that now? Like, are there, are there things that you do in your private life and your own life to kind of reground yourself and remind yourself, like, I'm a person beyond um, how people see me on stage or on social media? Like, how do you come back home to yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I honestly was going to stop doing this work if I hadn't figured out SV, if, if, SV didn't mm -hmm. come, if SV didn't come to me as a solution for creating those two petitions. Uh, as a deeply spiritual person, I, I, wasn't gonna, I wasn't going to find a way to reconcile those two, so I was just going to stop doing it and like mm. just pursue a path of spiritual maturation. But I think what the Spanish villager does is he creates this wall between me sure. and that other thing that needs to be profitable, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and so, I, you know, that thread of spiritual maturation over time remains pure at this point. And I mean, as far as some of the practices I do every day is, you know, I meditate a lot and I, and I write, mm. I write a lot. I think it's, my spiritual practice is really centered around writing, trying to reconcile what what my story is mm -hmm. in, a fu in, in a fundamental way, like who am I in the world? What's my value to society and to the planet? And mm -hmm. I, I, I do that by writing about it, where I'm just sort of like, it's like a story where I'm like trying to negotiate that with my psychology and with, you know, the operating system of culture uh, together. Wow. Thank you so much for talking with me. I could talk about this album all day because it rocks and it's really sensitive and your voice is just phenomenal on it. Um, but I want to let you go. Before I do, would you be willing to do a brief lightning round where I ask a bunch of quick questions and you respond quickly without thinking? Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Here's the Andara lightning round on Basic Folk. If you could go on a two-week vacation tomorrow, where would you go? Ah, Paris. What is the last TV show you watched and loved? Uh, unforgotten. What is the best age to be? Best age? Oh, wow. Um, the present age, whichever nice. that is, yeah. I can tell you're meditating. Um, <laughs> who is one fiction writer that everybody should read at least once in their life? Um, Joe Joel, I suppose. Mm -hmm. yeah. What is your least favorite household chore? Spreading the bed. Mm, yeah, very annoying. Um, <laughs> what non-human animal were you in a past life? Oh, uh, panther? Do you have a favorite pre-show or post-show drink? Drink? Mm-hmm. Uh, hmm. Interesting. Coconut water. Ooh, nice. And finally, if you were sent to a desert island and you could only bring one Bob Dylan record, which would you choose? <laughs> I would probably bring a Highway 61 revisited. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Andara, you have been such a great guest. Thank you so much for talking with me about your music. Thank you. I can't wait for people to hear this interview and everybody go listen to Spanish Villager number three. Thank you for the chat. Yeah. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy House. Our music is composed by Alex Stanton. Basic Focus on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. You can check us out at basicfolk.com. You can search on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk. 
or listen wherever you want, wherever you get podcasts. Thanks a lot for listening all the way to the end. You're the best. Um, We see you. We respect you. And I think you look really good today. I want to tell you, dear listener, that that new haircut is working. It is so working. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.